Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haber, Seattle's stage and screen experience coming to you in podcast form from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios on the shores of beautiful Puget Sound. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. Back in 2020, we took to the internet airwaves to interview talented local actors and directors. Now, over 75 episodes later, Highland and Haver is Seattle's number one stage and screen podcast, bringing you in-depth interviews from the finest talent from L.A. to Broadway to the U.K., including Emmy Award winners and best-selling authors, unsung heroes, and industry leaders. And all while keeping our finger on the pulse of the Seattle and Pacific Northwest theater scene with in-depth reviews, cast and crew conversations, and behind-the-scenes tours. Our second annual Highland and Haver Theater Awards are coming up Sunday, September 10th. And our list of top finalists in 26 categories for both community and professional theater are online now, along with a link for free tickets to the event. And while you're there, sign up for our free email newsletter so you don't miss a single update or episode. Welcome to episode 78. The Hollywood strike has now passed the 100-day mark with no end in sight. Just one week ago, on August 4th, Writers Guild of American negotiators met for the very first time in three months with representatives of the major studios to discuss whether contract talks can resume. According to Bloomberg reporter Luca Shaw, they made, quote, zero progress. The two sides are no closer than they were at the start of the strike. They can't even agree on how to resume negotiations. Whew, tough. Wow. Well, with much of the strike centered on the power imbalance between the major studios and the writers and the consolidation and lack of transparency among the streaming giants, we reached out to an expert on the issues of monopoly and corporate power in America for his take. Matt Stoller is the director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. He is the author of Goliath, the Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, which Business Insider called, quote, one of the year's best books on how to rethink capitalism and improve the economy, end quote. Stoller is a former policy advisor to the Senate Budget Committee, and he also worked for a member of the Financial Services Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives during the financial crisis. Matt's 2012 Law Review article on the foreclosure crisis, the housing crash, and the end of American citizenship predicted the rise of autocratic political forces, and his 2016 Atlantic article, How the Democrats Killed Their Populist Soul, helped inspire the new anti-monopoly movement. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, Fast Company, Foreign Policy, The Guardian, Vice, The American Conservative, and The Baffler. And Matt writes the monopoly-focused newsletter Big, with tens of thousands of subscribers, which you can find and follow on Substack. And Matt joins us from Washington, D.C. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Matt, we first ran across your piece on Substack, Time to Break Up Hollywood, via Hollywood director Michael Moore, who shared it in his newsletter back in, in early July. The headline says, quote, Hollywood is trapped in a death spiral with streaming giants struggling to profit while smothering the industry itself. Finally, the writer stood up, but will it be enough? And of course, there's the referring to the writer's strike and, and then the subsequent actor's uh, strike as well. Uh, can you give us the Cliff's Notes version of the WGA's complaints and, and what you see as the major issues that need resolving? Sure. I mean, I guess I should start by saying I'm not in the WGA and I don't follow the the labor disputes in detail. I do antitrust and corporate power in general. There's a number of aspects to that. So I'm not looking at this from like a, a, a just a labor perspective and I'm I might get some things wrong. I'm not, I don't want to speak for them. But I would say just generally speaking, their complaint, and this is true of the actors as well, and it's also true of uh, directors and executives and a, a lot of the people that are involved in, in in movies, the people that film, that actually run the cameras, something is very wrong with the industry, right? People, uh, they're, they're not making good movies anymore and people are not getting paid a reasonable amount. But somehow like the CEOs of the, of the streaming giants, the CEOs are getting high wages, huge bonuses and whatnot, 
but the actual companies themselves are not making money. So something is very wrong with the industry. And generally speaking, what the WGA and the actors want is they want a like a higher revenue share. They want like a reasonable amount of money based on the work that they do. But behind that is a kind of like sense of like fix the industry. So we're not just working on like the 15th Marvel movie that people don't want to see anymore, if that makes sense. It does. And actually, one of the, one of the first uh, issues we covered back on our show when we launched in 2020 was the end of the, the, the Paramount decision, really, that reversal from 1948, broke up the studio system, divested studios of their theater chains. Uh, you refer to some of this in your book, Goliath. What similarities do you see between the two eras and you know what historical changes on kind of that macro level uh, in the industry and America in general left us with this mess we've got now? Yeah, so, uh, wow, uh, it's, a big, it's a big question. So, okay, so there's two like general ways that we meant, there's two general principles in, in how America organized its economy and corporations prior to the 1980s that we kind of gotten away from. And this was in the Paramount decrees, um, also the um, financial syndication rules in the 1970s, um, which did basically the same thing, but for TV. Uh, but it also was in a lot of different other industries, like the Glass-Steagall Act in banking or, you know, Public Utility Holding Company Act in electric utilities. And those two principles are no one should have too much power, right? Like, don't let people monopolize an industry. And the other one is, if you can avoid it, try to avoid people having to deal with conflicts of interest, right? So, like, if you're a buyer, you shouldn't get paid by a seller, Right. Or you shouldn't necessarily have a financial interest. If you're a distributor, you shouldn't necessarily have a financial interest in like one product you're distributing versus another product that you're distributing. Cause then that makes you want to, you know, push something on someone that maybe is not in their best interest. Right. That's in the Bible. No man may serve two masters. Right. So those are the two principles. And it, and it pretty much worked. Now in Hollywood and like the entertainment industry, we manifested those principles through what you talked about, which is the Paramount decrees, which said, that you're going to have a number of different studios. So that's the, no one should have too much power. But then the other thing is no conflicts of interest. So if you are making movies, you can't also be selling them to consumers and vice versa, right? So the theater owner is going to be thinking about how can I get the movie that my audience is going to like versus how can I put a movie in my theater that I have a financial interest in, right? And maybe the audience won't like it as much, but... I'll make more money if I put it in. And what the, the consent decree was saying is we don't want studios to own the theater chains because then they'll put stuff into theaters that is maybe not as good, right? Or that maybe they have a financial interest in. And the same thing happened in, the, in TV in 1970 when the Federal Trade Commission, Communications Commission said that if you're a network, a TV network, you can't have a financial interest in the TV shows you're putting on primetime. Right. And so then all of a sudden, these TV networks, they have an incentive to like find the best stuff. Right. Instead of like just choose whatever they're going to make and keep the, you know, have a financial interest in that product. So it's like, you know, there are a lot of uh, some of the greatest TV shows ever made. And some of the most diverse TV shows were made in from 1970 to 1993. We're talking everything from Marilyn Tyler Moore to All in the Family to Seinfeld in that period when you had this, uh, you had these open markets, right? Because you could go and be like, I want to pitch this show. And if ABC didn't like it, you could pitch it to NBC or CBS. And they also knew that. 
And the same thing is true with the theaters. You could put your your movie into a number of, of theaters and um, if it did well, it would, you know, other theaters would adopt it and be like, oh, that movie is selling, you know, people seem to like Back to the Future or whatever. And then the multiplexes kind of got rolled up into three companies in the 1990s. And all of a sudden you have to release your movies on, you know, 3000 screens at once. You know, then it's like it has to do really well. It's opening weekend or it's not going to do well at all. And so all of a sudden now you can't introduce a new product. It's just IP people stuff people already knows. That's when you started to see in the late 90s, more and more superhero movies, more and more sequels, prequels, uh, spin-offs, stuff that people already knew. And then you started to see like corporations like Disney was sort of a leader here, Netflix as well, to just try to aggregate as much IP as possible. So they would have bargaining power with uh, distribution. And then when Comcast bought NBC, all of a sudden it was, okay, now they're going to move into direct distribution to consumers. And then that recreated the uh, pre-1948 sort of studio system where you had like five studio bosses and they just determined whether, you know, any movie could ever see the light of day. And that is a very authoritarian type of system. It's also not a system that consumers like very much because they're not getting interesting as many interesting movies. And then it's also something that is bad for suppliers, whether those suppliers are uh, writers or actors or um, directors, or whether they're executives or production houses or any, uh, any of the other many, many, many firms that actually make the movie and TV industry what they are. Do you feel that during the litigation around the, the Comcast uh, merger that Perhaps someone at that point should have stepped up and said, hey, we've got to make sure that if we're doing this, this could set a precedent. We have to make sure that we have that dividing line between production and, and distribution. Is that kind of maybe where somebody dropped the ball on that? Or do you find maybe it happened somewhere else? Well, okay. So what happened is in the in like the 1970s, right, I laid out these principles and, the, and these principles go back thousands of years, but like you can really trace them in America to the 1600s. But in the 1980s, there was sort of an, a series of arguments from uh, both sort of leftists and conservatives, legal scholars, essentially, who, saying, actually, conflicts of interest are fine. And huge aggregations of power, it's fine because it's more efficient, right? So what we want, it's like, hey, look, if Disney, they didn't say this then because Disney Plus is relatively new, but like they would say something like, well, isn't it awesome that Disney now has Disney Plus and they have all of this IP, including Star Wars and the Muppets and Pixar and all these different firms and all of the Fox's library because they bought Fox. And now they can stick it on one service and sell that directly to consumers. Think about all the middlemen that are cut out. That's way more efficient, right? And so in 2010, when they were thinking about the Comcast-NBC merger, yeah, there was some concern that Comcast would prevent the distribution of rival content. But there was also that attitude that, well, you know, this is just going to be more efficient. You have someone that distributes content, um, which is to say Comcast. They are a pay TV provider and they're a, a, a broadband ISP. And then you have this company, NBC Universal, which makes TV shows and movies. They have a TV network. Well, if you combine the distributor with the producer, then all of a sudden you get like this really great, efficient system that just moves things, you know, farm to table. Right. That was the that's the philosophy and that's the attitude. So it's really like an ideological shift 
not so much that people like didn't notice this was going to happen, but they actually thought it was good to have bigger institutions with what they would call vertical integration. I would just call it conflicts of interest. So that's really what we're wrestling with. And, and that's why it's so hard to make, to, to do the sort of pushback, because you still have a lot of these people who think, oh, this stuff is really cool and great and efficient. Why would you ever want to change any of it? Right. And that's like a lot of the, a lot of policymakers and judges and stuff like that still kind of buy into that philosophy. And by the way, it's not just Hollywood. Like you can look at giant insurance companies, which have vertically integrated into, they own like a lot of the doctor's practices today, or they own like urgent care clinics and, you know, look at CVS. CVS owns all of these pharmacies. They're also like, they also own Aetna and they own like pharmaceutical distribution companies and urgent care clinics and so on. And, so, and you, you, you know, you could just look at big tech, like they own from soup to nuts, right? Every part of the industry supply chain. And that's because there's this sense, well, this is all, this is all very efficient. Um, and like you just saw, like Microsoft Activision, that was a big merger case. Microsoft just tried to bought successfully, bought the largest, uh, one of the largest video game producers. Microsoft makes Xbox. They also make a lot of video games. But like the basic argument there was, well, we're going to buy Activision, which makes Call of Duty and, and lots of other Diablo, lots of other video games, Candy Crush. And we're going to distribute them more efficiently because we're Microsoft. We're so big. We have the Xbox and we can make things cheaper and better. And the government said, no, this, this merger is dangerous because you're going to create a walled garden of the whole video game industry. And the judge was like, nah, what are you talking about? This is just going to be cooler and better and more efficient. And so we have this philosophical debate that's going on about how we run our society. And it really is a philosophical debate. And I could make all the legal arguments why I'm right. But at the end of the day, that is really the, the argument, right? That is the question. It's like, a it's not like corruption or, I mean, there are, you can always find elements of corruption, but it really is just like, do we, what kind of society do we want to live in? You know, and it's interesting you mentioned that because one of the benefits of, of capitalism versus some of the other economies that you'll find around the world is the idea of of progress, of, of, of making progress and improving things and et cetera. But when you mentioned the consolidation of the movie theaters, the first thing I thought when you made that argument was, well, people aren't going to take risks anymore. And if you don't take risks, you're not going to make that progress that we're talking about. So what it sounds like, and if you could speak to this is, does this halt or, or slow down or impede that progress that we would normally see in in our economy by having these just few large kind of conglomerate companies? Uh, it's a really insightful uh, question and comment. Uh, I would say that, you know, it, it is when you centralize power, which is what we're talking about, when you, you can centralize power through Soviet means and have the government sort of take things over, but you can centralize power the way that monopolists do it, which is, you know, you buy up rivals, you prevent new entrants, but centralization is exactly what you said. It, it creates this lack of risk tolerance and it does undermine capitalism itself. It does say what makes capitalism work is, you know, progress is just another way of saying that like you can have new people come into a market and compete on the merits. And they're usually like the person who is like young and enthusiastic and trying different weird stuff and has something to say in the arts, they're the ones that people people want to, they want to be associated with. Like the cool movie, you never, you don't usually see like a new cool style of art from like a 65 year old wealthy dude. 
right? You know, you usually see it from someone who's young and hungry and trying things. And a system that is like, let's have a bunch of 65-year-olds making all of the content decisions is just not going to let those younger people who have something interesting to say come in and compete on the merits. It's not like any one of those people is necessarily going to be that good. There's a lot of really shitty 25-year-old filmmakers. But like you want them to be able to, to actually compete and then to have the audience find the artist. And right now what you have instead is a bunch of kind of like centralized, Sovietized officials who are running these giant studios and they don't like, they don't even really like movies. It's just like you have these very, these gray men bureaucrats running things. And yeah, it does undermine capitalism. It does undermine, you know, our basic sense of liberty. So many uh, similarities to kind of that end of the last golden age. We just uh, spoke with author Sam Wasson, uh, the author of The Big Goodbye, The End of Old Hollywood, The Making of Chinatown, and that whole kind of, um, you know, the auteur movement in the 70s, and all these young creatives fighting exactly the same things that you're describing, these old gray men still trying to make old gray movies the way they've done it for decades, and that conflict that took place that those those auteurs, you know, and, and the young, um, you know, you, you talk about Nicholson and and these others that were, you know, new and fresh and had uh, wanted to kind of take on Hollywood in a new way, they had some success, but it was only maybe for about five, ten years until things again flipped back in the '80s. So it's just so interesting that you know history repeating itself as it tends to do. <laughs> well, I, I would say you know, so New Hollywood um, is was in many ways a result of the antitrust decree in '48 and the breakdown of the studio system. Like they would not have been able to do what they did because of that. But I, I think there were like, you know, there were lots of different interesting, you know, movies that were made almost into the 2000s, 2010s. I mean, there's a myth, there's the there's the mythology of like New Hollywood and the auteurs. But, you know, like Pulp Fiction was fascinating as a, as a movie. And, and like Quentin Tarantino today is complaining about how Disney is basically boxing out his movies out of theaters. Um, and it's like, that's Quentin Tarantino, right? I mean, it's not like he's young and hungry and maybe you don't care if The Hateful Eight is in some theater, but like if Quentin Tarantino can't get his movies into like a theater, then the 25-year-old version of him certainly can't, right? So so I I, I don't want to like, I don't want to over-romanticize kind of the new Hollywood period and just say, oh, this was a five, 10-year thing. I actually think it was more like a 30 to 40-year trend of just having like, all sorts of different types of movies being able to get into an open set of markets. It was not a cultural battle. I mean, obviously in a sense it was, but it was a, it was the result of law and market structure, right? I mean, that that's what's missing from the debates in Hollywood right now is that like, this is not just a labor dispute and this is not Netflix decided to do this thing that we didn't like or Disney did this thing that we didn't like, or Bob Iger did this or that. It, this is a problem with law, right? This is a problem with the laws and the regulations that structure this industry. And that's, I think, where to get to. It's like, it's almost like a libertarian debate where people are debating these industry dynamics without thinking about how the law works. And that is not how the CEOs are thinking or the, the owners of these studios are thinking because they're all thinking, how can we do mergers in an environment where the Biden administration has made mergers much more difficult? Because they want their their way out of this 
is to just merge so that you, you know, I think you have five or six major streaming firms. They want to get it down to two or three and they'll have to go up against the government if they're going to do that. But it's like the other side, the writers and the actors and the directors, I think are starting to understand, okay, wait a second, there are rules here and we have as much a right as the studios do to make arguments about what those rules and laws should be. We've been chatting about getting you on the show for a few weeks now. It's like, is this thing going to end before we had a chance to talk to you? But you need know, you quote a striker in your column who says, uh, you know, it's about the whole corporate dominance of America. Right. Do, do you really see a whole lot of large scale change coming from the strike or is this on the radar of any politicians? Are they paying attention? I know this, you know, you talk about what the, what happened over in the UK and how they uh, deregulated a lot of this. And now we're seeing a lot of really creative television and, you know, options coming from the UK. Are politicians paying attention? Yeah, they are. Of course they are. This is a major labor action. At the very least, California ones are paying attention. I mean, it it definitely. I talk to I talk to policymakers all the time and they really want to be involved. But what is holding them back is they don't know what to do. Because it's like you can only say so many times the studio should negotiate with the actors, right? I mean, or the or the writers. What needs to happen is the writers and the directors and the actors need to come out and say, it's time to break up the studios. Here's the policy we want. And then politicians can be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's let's start holding hearings and whatnot. But like, you're not going to get up. That's the thing is that like the conversation has to come from Hollywood. And right now, the writers and the actors are focused on getting a better revenue share from the industry. And they're starting to realize, wait a second, we have to restructure the industry as well. But like politicians are responding to what they are, to what the strikers are saying. And what the strikers are saying is we want a better revenue share. And so that's what the politicians are saying. It's like if the strikers started saying, actually, we need the industry broken up. Like if that was a demand in this, they were like, you know, if they sent a letter to Congress said, we want hearings on how consolidated Hollywood is, you know, I don't know that they would get them. But I know that if they don't ask, they certainly won't get them, right? So in a sense, politicians are paying attention. They're paying very close attention. And they are reflecting what the strikers are saying, if that makes sense. One of the things I wanted to ask you is your take on our role as consumers in almost letting this happen. And this is not just a a Hollywood issue, but to me, it comes back to the our desire as a society for senseless plastic objects dirt cheap right now. Um, and I look back at, you know, trying to figure out this whole revenue thing around streaming. Disney tried to add uh, a $27 premium fee when they released Mulan to to their service to Disney Plus a couple of years ago during COVID. That wasn't met very well. I think any increase in a monthly subscription fee, people aren't going to want to pay. I think it would actually almost doom those, those services if they did that. Have we let some of this happen as a result of us wanting these things inexpensively, you know, in order to, that that they're losing money and potentially don't have the ability to pay the actors and writers what they desire? So, I mean, Netflix keeps raising their price. Disney keeps raising their Disney, Disney Plus price. And people paid for Barbie and they paid for Oppenheimer. So I don't think the issue is that people don't want to pay. I don't think that consumer like based action really makes sense. Like as consumers, you know, what is it? 
consumers will sell their birthright for a mess of pottage. That was, that was Louis Brandeis. Like as a consumer, when I go to the store, I want the cheapest thing, right? It's just the way we are as people. And like we get manipulated in all sorts of ways. And I don't think we should expect that we should think about this as a consumer rights issue. We should think about this as, cause that's the, that's the, that's a losing frame. Like we need to think about this as citizens and what kind of society we want. Now, I think it's obviously true that people want cheap stuff, but it's also true that prices have gotten much more expensive in our society over time. So it's like, you can make the argument, oh, well, all of this is a result of the fact that like, they're just selling us cheap stuff. But in fact, we're not, we're not really even getting the cheap stuff, right? It's just that what they've done is they, this is part of the ideological debate. They've transformed the way we understand ourselves as having no rights right? As just being a consumer, right? And just being like, you get to vote with your dollars. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? No, you vote with your vote. And then like you set up rules. Like it's totally absurd to say you vote with your dollars. That's like a way of attacking our rights as human beings and our ability to structure our communities and our commerce. So I, what I, would, I guess what I would say is like, we haven't let this happen as consumers but we've let ourselves be defined as consumers. And so we've let it happen as citizens. It's an interesting yeah. take on it. And you, and you mentioned Barbie Heimer, that phenomenon. Barbie just crossed the $1 billion threshold, you know, worldwide. People like Francis Ford Coppola are saying this is the beginning of the new, you know, gold, a new golden age now of Hollywood. And it's great. We love seeing people go back to theaters. Is that part of the solution? You know, do we, do we as consumers, uh, you said not vote with our dollars, but Time to maybe scale back on a few of those, uh, you know, uh, streaming subscriptions. You know, time to write some letters to Congress people supporting what's going on in in Hollywood, that sort of thing. I don't think that you're going to see a huge change just because of Bar Barbenheimer um, in the way the studios operate. You might see some attempts, but like what Barbenheimer showed is that a lot of the the arguments that the studios were putting out. Or that that everyone in Hollywood, not just the studios, people don't want to go to the movies anymore. Oh, it's technology disruption, whatever. Like any of the arguments that there are these grand metaphysical forces, that those aren't true. That what was happening is the studios were putting out crappy movies that people didn't want to see. If you can fix that, if you can put out culturally relevant movies where you have like a strong auteur, right? Because like Greta Gerwig. Uh, and Christopher Nolan both have very strong artistic perspectives. If you can do that, then you can sell your commerce and you and you can get people to the movies. But what I, I, I don't think that the market structure, like what that showed is that you can overcome problems in the market structure if you put out like, you know, artistically strong perspectives. But Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig already had reputations. Who are the next versions of them? Where's the creative refresh after them? And that's where having like not that many, um, it just so happened that they could release movies on like thousands of movie theaters at once. And both of those movies were very strong. That's an unusual situation. Like what we need is to get back to a more open and more decentralized system where you can try things out and like people can put out their movies and maybe not take as much risk because those were both very risky movies as well and see if see if things work. Like Back to the Future in 1985 did really, really well, but it was in more movie, more movie theaters after two months than after its first weekend. 
So it didn't do this like it made a billion dollars in a weekend. It made, I don't know, 100 million, 200 million dollars in 1985, like a lot of money for 1985, but it made them by getting $10 million a weekend, right? Just like one, you know, and so it was it, word of mouth function, like there were real markets. There was, uh, they were thick and you had reviews, you had the ability of people to talk to each other. You had theater owners talking to each other and being like, what's selling? What do people want to see? And it's like, that allows for people to try things. And if it sells, then it spreads. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And I think that that's like what kind of what we have to get back to if you want to see more Barbenheimer type of successes. That's a market structure issue. But I think like what we did see with Barbenheimer is like, yeah, people want stories. They want new stories. They want different ways of, of thinking about the world. I would say also with Barbie and Oppenheimer, Barbie is IP and Oppenheimer, well, not IP, he is a historical figure that people know. So there is there is a little bit of a, like, could you do a back to the future today, right? Like, I don't know, because that's just that's just new product, right? So in, in some ways, if you look at how YouTube stars get created, like a YouTube star or a TikTok influencer, like what they do is they find a niche and hit that niche and then grow and and they some of them grow to like the size of their niche some of them you know become like mr beast right and they're just like massive but it's like you start and you hit a niche and then you grow outside of that none of them start by like Google, youtube doesn't put a newcomer in front of everyone who goes to the youtube homepage you build out and you you know from a niche and that is in many ways the analogy to having a decentralized movie theater or TV apparatus that worked really well is it built up niches and then and then some of them exploded into global, actually global phenomena. Well, before we let you go, we got to ask: are are there any are there any streaming series that you have uh, really gotten into lately? And uh, what have, what have you thought about some of the the most recent movies that have come out? Have you seen Barbie Oppenheimer? Uh, what do you think? You know, as I a consumer, just just for the for the fun of it. I want I want I want to see up. I haven't seen either of them yet. I'm we're going to see uh, Oppenheimer on IMAX. I think on like Thursday. I haven't seen Barbie. I've been told that that it's it's just um, it's like a it's a toy advertisement, which is a critique I have never, but I, that's, I want to see it, but I, you know, that's, that's what I told, but the TV show I got into recently is the bear. Oh, yes. Awesome. Yeah. We just, we just started season two. That is a phenomenal show. It's so good. And only murders in the building. Yes. Like that one, you know, one, one of the um, writers of the bear actually emailed me and told me that he is running for the board of the, the WGA. And I think his, some of, he had some of experiences with consolidation and, and how this really limits his ability to um, to actually like bargain effectively, and I thought that was that was pretty interesting because the bear is a great show, and it's like if you can't make a good living off of that, right? I mean, I, it's also I think very popular. Not to be like what we whether we random elitists think that the bear is a great show doesn't necessarily mean it makes money, <laughs> but it actually is very popular as well, um, which is more to the point. And if you're if you're a writer on the bear, which is like a great show and a very popular show. That should set you up for a really good career because it means you know how to you know how to write, and I don't think that that is the dynamic that exists right now. And so that's what that has to happen with the WGA and the actors, like structuring a market so that people who do that kind of work can get remunerated for it, and also like so that we can get more shows like The Bear, right? Yeah, it's it's in everyone's best interest. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Well, Matt, thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you. I guess before we let you go, uh, what's next for you? What projects are you working on and how can people best keep up with uh, with your work? Yeah, so I write a newsletter. It's at the it's called thebignewsletter.com and I write about monopolies. So last week I wrote about the biggest antitrust case of the, the 21st century starting in September. It's against Google. And I am going to write about the sports trading card monopoly this week. So I write about weird monopolies. And so I also wrote about Hollywood. That's where you guys read it from. And uh, and then I wrote a book called Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly, Power, and Democracy, which you guys kindly referenced. And I'm also the director of research at a think tank called the American Economic Liberties Project. We'll get all that linked in the show notes. And uh, yeah, Goliath is is excellent. And uh, we just really appreciate your take. It's a, it's a unique take. And uh you're glad to run into your your articles on Substack. They really just enlightened me and us about uh, just the intricacies of the issue, like you said, on that grand scale. Just so much involved to digest, and you did a really great job of doing that for, for us consumers out here. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, right, man. Thanks so much. Well, thank you again to our guest, Director of Research at the American Economic Liberties Project, Matt Stoller. His book, Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, can be found everywhere fine books are sold. And you can subscribe to his newsletter, Big, on Substack, and reach him directly at mstoller, two L's, mstoller at economicliberties.us, all linked in our show notes. And if you enjoyed episode 78, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. You can find all the latest on heilmanandhaver.com. Plus, all of our past episodes, stage reviews, and popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and behind-the-scenes artist interviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haber. 